Well, I don't think a man like me reckons anything about the year, which is 1941. You could always reckon that in the year 1941, M&Ms were invented specifically to give to soldiers, which is why they had, like, the candy outside was so that if the chocolate melted, it didn't, like, escape. Also, it was only for soldiers. So... (laughs) So city, civilians couldn't get their hands on this shit for a while. Nah, M&M's were the soldiers' chocolate of choice, and also the only chocolate they were allowed to mm-hmm. have. Would the real soldiers' chocolate please stand up? Uh, something else that happened in 1941 is that Polish writer and attorney Raphael Lemkin coined the term genocide. Aww. He did it by combining the Greek word genos with the Latin word side. Which means race killing. I, I will be frank. It's a term that we probably could have invented a long time ago at this it point. It does seem surprisingly late to have late. happened. Yeah. But but I'm glad <laughs> glad we got there. It's uh, we're, We are in the midst still of the world wars. Um, I don't think, I think by the end of this year, mm-hmm. um, America will have formally joined the war don't remember i think pearl harbor happens december 8th i think so something else happened in 1941 though and that's that grapes of wrath got nominated for best best director it also won best director (laughs) (laughs) sorry i just realized i said nominated which left it kind of ambiguous did it win well if it didn't win we wouldn't be talking about it We took summer break off. I'm your critic, Mavis Evergreen. I'm here to talk about feminism. I'm here to talk about historical context. I'm here to talk about communism. My name is Andres Reyes, and I will be talking about labor struggles, class struggle, race struggles, communism. We're throwing some big words around today. Uh, I'll also be talking about kind of Hollywood history when I can and the history of cinema and film as well as film theory whenever I find it applicable. And today we watched The Grapes of Wrath, directed by John Ford. Written by? John Steinbeck. Well, (laughs) not really, but we'll get to that later. Do you want to introduce us to this film? Yeah, let's put a pin in that, and I'm going to give you a quick uh, summary of what this film was about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the Grapes of Wrath, 1940, is a dramatic film directed by John Ford based on the novel written by John Steinbeck a year earlier. The film follows Tom Jode and the trials and tribulations of the Jode family as they are whisked away from their farm by the Dust Bowl, and the banks using this as an excuse to collectivize the sharecropping industry. They decide to follow other families out west to California, but there they only find more hardship in the form of police brutality, brutal company farms, divorce, and murder. This proves to be too much for Tom Jode, who after the death of his preacher friend breaks parole and runs away to protect his family. Ma Jode rounds up and rouses the rest of the family, letting them know that no matter what happens, they will always be poor. Slut. <laughs> Let's talk as much as we're going to, I think, about the movie. 
I think just from a sheer craft perspective, I think this movie is pretty, pretty well put together visually. There are some scenes that I think are very like obviously like sound stages where they just couldn't quite capture the outdoor that they needed to. But for the most part, once we get to like, you know, the road trip portion Mm -hmm. of the movie, which is like half of the movie, a lot of this feels like it's on location. Hard to tell if it is because it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. But New Mexico feels like New Mexico. There's point in the movie where they travel through Yuma. And I was like, fuck this place. Um, but I recognize it. I was like, that's the fucking bridge. Um, it, they actually still there. It's well, they moved it, I think, like 20 feet to the right because <laughs> um, it doesn't work anymore. But it's still there. Um, it's just not functional. California looks like California when, uh, when they get there. And then as soon as they get into the like camps and stuff, we're back on a soundstage. But it's competently put together. We're finally at the point in history where like we're paying attention to like the camera as as an indicator of intent. Up until this point, I think a lot of movies have been kind of flip-flopping on this. Rebecca does it way better than this movie does. But there are points in this movie where characters look at an object and the camera will cut to that subject just so that we understand as an audience that this is what they're looking at or that this is what they're talking about that's nice i guess it's real basic shit like nothing that i would say is worthy of an oscar but i think the the reasons that this movie won an oscar were more political the main theme of this movie is about family and the family unit la familia la familia and how important family is. It's a Vin Diesel-ass movie. It is a Vin Diesel-ass movie. Uh, and in the same Vin Diesel way, family is held together by men and one non-sexualized woman. That is how family is allowed to be constructed. The second theme is uh, like emasculation, that like the worst thing that can happen to any human is for a white man not to have a job. Yeah, we can get into those things if you want, but if you want to bring up anything else before then. I think we all understand in in kind of the modern day that like Hollywood likes making book adaptations. I think for most of us, or people in my generation anyway, our earliest memory of that is is Harry Potter. And I think the thing about this movie that, that that's kind of crazy is how this has kind of always been the case. Hollywood's <laughs> always been adapting books and plays and stuff into movies. Mm-hmm. It never really got away from that. But the speed at which this book, which came out in 1939, was made into a movie and then it won an Oscar. Like, I tried to snap my finger, but I couldn't. Good job. Clearly, like, a politically motivated reason Mm -hmm. for this book and this story at this moment to be made into a film that was ingestible by big audiences in a way that even the book couldn't reach, right? Mm Because film is so much easier to do, to consume than a book. Yeah, absolutely. I do absolutely think this movie is kind of propaganda. Like the goal of this movie is to take your mind off of what is happening literally and to be like, oh, you need to be thinking about yourself. Mm -hmm. You need to be individualizing yourself. You need to be thinking about your family. Nothing Mm -hmm. is more important than your family. Surely... You could not get together with other workers and sort of do some sort of organized movement. I very much think the movie, the reason it's so focused on family is to push the idea that like, if your child's not eating, that's your fault, Steven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's, it's very interesting the ways in which this movie 
very obviously like desystemizes problems. Like mm-hmm. systems don't exist. Only people and their families. Community isn't real. It's only people and their families that just so happen to be near each other, which is some real Thatcherist shit, which like we're not going to get to Thatcherism for another 40 years, but like the kernels of those ideas are here in this movie. Um, There's literally a scene in which a guy is kicking them off their farm and they're like, oh, well, I'm going to shoot you with a gun. And the guy's like, well, you can't shoot me. I'm just a guy doing a job. And they're like, well, I'm going to shoot your boss with a gun. And he's like, well, you can't shoot my boss. He's just working for the banks. He's and just it's like, a well, CEO of a company. It's, it's like, well, I'm going to shoot the guy running the bank. It's like, well, you can't shoot the guy at the bank because, like, the government owns the bank. And the idea of, like, oh, nobody is at fault for any problems. There are no systems. No one can be blamed for those systems. They exist outside of humanity. Which it, is ridiculous. Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, we're at the height of, like, great chain economics as well. <laughs> FDR is really pushing, like, socialized programs in res- in response to a lot of, like, labor movements that are happening. But, like, we still have a firm belief at this point in time in the idea of, like, the great chain of capitalism, right? Like, capitalism is just this unknowable behemoth. It's a whale that we can't control. We're just tied to it. And, like, no one is at fault, mm-hmm. right? If the great chain pulls away from you, you just got to... Get in the dirt, grip it, and pull it right back. You you know those bootstraps? You got to pull those way up. Pull, you're not pulling on them hard enough. I also think this movie is really lazy about it. Absolutely. It also brings up questions that it's not prepared to answer in a way that is interesting, right? In a way where I think somebody could watch this movie and be like, oh, well, it has things to say. And it's like, having questions is not having things to say, right? Like, one, sugarcoating like a terrible phenomenon is not the same thing as being like, this is a problem. And I think it's easy to confuse those two things uh, to stop hiding behind metaphor. There's a scene in this movie where a cop shoots a poor woman for no reason, just does it for lulls. And in the movie, that's it. That's the end of it. It's like, well, that was rude, but oopsie. And we'll never talk about the violence of the police force against the poor before or how, like, no punishment happens there. Um, however, like, even the book gets more into it, and it's wild to see, like, all of the levels of sugarcoating to be like, this is maybe an interesting concept. Whoopee. We won't talk about it again. Yeah. I mean, it's poverty porn. It's it's Absolutely. It's, it exists so that people in... in people, people who in, couldn't afford to go to cinemas. Yeah, the, the owning class can watch it and go, oh my God, things are so awful. It's a good thing that I donate to charity um, so that things like this don't happen and bullshit like that, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, one, it's like for, it's not forcing people to look like look and see what it is that ye have wrought. It is, it is basically just saying like, wow, isn't this crazy that there are parts of America that are still like this? And it's like, you get the same thing in mm-hmm. modern film, you know? Anytime any character in any movie has to like, go to the bad side of town or whatever the fuck. But it it has no teeth. Yeah. This movie does a thing that, like, movies do now that I think is odd, which is, like, it makes it other. This movie's like, well, they're in California. And as long as you're not in California, you're like, well, I can't believe California is that bad. But that's not here where I live, right? Because, like, even when this movie was coming out, California was still kind of a faraway place for a lot of people. And they, like, really focus on, like, Oh, well, it's bad in California, but if you live anywhere else, it's okay. And, like, movies today do that. They're like, oh, well, it's bad in Mexico, but it's a good thing you don't live there. Mm -hmm. Bad in Chicago. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, the news does this, right? Like the news, the way that the news talks about like cities like New York or Chicago or state of California or Seattle, they're just like, oh my God, look at these fucking hell holes. It's amazing that people could live in these battle zoned. And it's like, this is just a place that people live in. And like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, there's kind of sort of more crime in big cities, but there's also kind of sort of a fuck ton more people (laughs) like my bad. Also, huge income inequality in those places. Desperation yeah. at an all-time high, baby. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also places where, like, the contradiction of inequality is so much easier to see, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in New York, you can literally just, like, walk down a street and, like, go from bull selling knockoff Gucci bags two streets down, like, walk by a restaurant that you will never be able to afford to go to in your life. And, like, that just exists together. And that's why you often see these kinds of, like places where it's easier to see those contradictions it's easier to do something about them and yeah. to point at it and go look at that that's fucking insane and i think something that this movie does kind of sort of a good job of illustrating is like when you're out in the middle of nowhere oklahoma and the fucking like ass end of the united states like you can't see the masters you can only feel the whips and it's like it's only until they go to california where again they are more able to interact with other families in similar positions in, in a large scale and see the police brutality at a large scale that some characters, not all characters, but like one character mm-hmm. is like, whoa, like this is, look at this shit. We got to do something about this. Mm-hmm. The movie never looks at that and goes, they're right. We should do something about this. And the movie's kind of just like, well, this is the way things have to be. Some people are doing things about it, but eh, we're going to kill them. So you probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. We're going to give the subtle implication that hey, you probably shouldn't because they die. And you don't want to die. You have a family. You have a family. This movie also does the a thing that is getting more casual in film and in like pain porn, suffrage porn, which is like a woman just has a miscarriage and it's like, oh, that's so sad. More sadness is happening. Mm-hmm. She's spoken one line this whole movie. Cool. Um, oh, that she's not even a character. She's not even a character. She exists <laughs> to be tortured, and that's it. The only lines she gets to sp- she gets to speak are ones that come from a wailing mouth. I want to talk about you know feminism and the role of women in this movie, but I don't think we can yet. No, in the same way that we can't really talk about race and the role of minorities in this movie, it just doesn't exist in this be- movie because it doesn't exist. Um, it's it's. It's like they drew a circle around all that stuff and excised it out. But you can feel that it's missing when you're watching it. Absolutely. This is a movie that feels unfocused mm-hmm. in a way that's hard to like pin down. It's also poorly paced. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, there's a reason it feels that way. It's not just because, the, again, the movie had an insane turnaround in its production. But it's also because the story that it's based on is missing those things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sorry about John Steinbeck's book. So Grapes of Wrath was written and pu- was written and published in 1939. And John Steinbeck worked alongside one of his friends who worked for the Department of Agriculture to get notes on people's living conditions in the Dust Bowl era. John Steinbeck wasn't really a journalist. You have to write things to be a journalist. But you can kind of see where he was trying to get at. The problem is that all of those notes belonged to one woman uh, all of those notes belong to, um, what was her name? Sonora Babb, um, who was also a writer at the time. She had just finished the manuscript for her book in the same year. And that book was called Whose Names Are Unknown. So Steinbeck took her notes and beat her to the deadline, as it were. And his book was published. And as soon as it came out, it was lauded and awarded and appraised. And 
Bab's book, Contract, was lost. She was given an advance for her next book, and the publisher told her that they just didn't think it was the right climate for two books about the same thing. Using the same notes. Using the same notes that she wrote her fucking notes. And the book just kind of stayed in limbo until 2004 when the University of Oklahoma Press, I believe, approached Sonora Bab and asked her if she was still willing to publish it. And the I cannot stress the anger that I felt when I found out about this because this is just straight plagiarism. <laughs> like, he stole her book and then filed away the edges. Well, let's talk about what those edges are. Like what Sonora Bab's book is about and how it's different than the book he wrote. So one of the main differences between the two books is women's role in struggle. You can really see that in the end of Grapes of Wrath. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in the end of the book, the Grapes of Wrath, which this does not happen in the movie. The movie kind of just ends with Ma Jode's little pontification about how, you know, they'll always be poor. But the, the book ends with them finding a, a man and a boy starving to death in a barn. The man's starving to death. The boy is fine. And Ma Jode makes... Rose, who had just had a miscarriage, feed him using her breast milk. And this is this is really the uh, the epitome of like what this book believes about women, which is that they exist to supplement men. They exist to support them. Um, and they are they are only allowed to be heads of the house if they have lived out their life in subservience until their man dies mm -hmm. and then they can finally be the head of the household. An authority figure in once. very limited respects. And it's just like there's no place for women in struggle. There's no there's no reason for like women just, just they're just there um, hanging around, getting in the way. Making um, food. Getting shot by cops. <laughs> Sonora Bab makes it absolutely clear that not only are women integral to struggle, not only are they also participating in striking uh, activities and in organization, but that it is not until the men in the book recognize that women are equal with them in suffering mm -hmm. that they learn the lesson of the book, that any of what they did matters. Up until that point, it's just practice. Mm -hmm. But once they understand that like women are hand in hand with us too, we are equals, we are the working class then they can properly struggle. And the book kind of ends on on the note of like, well, like who knows what'll happen now, but you have to get to this point first. And that's beautiful in a way. Absolutely. It is a book about community, about how you need to know who you're working with. Uh, Sonora's book also talks about who would have guessed not white people, crazy, that also not white people were struggling during a depression. Mm -hmm. About how the labor force was purposefully separating white and black camps. To prevent solidarity. And how they also had to join hand in hand and be some sort of community coalition. Yeah, and that it's not, and it wasn't until the white men of those communities recognized that their black brothers were equal to them as a class, were having the same suffering that they could, and this is going to sound familiar, properly do the work of class struggle. Who could have imagined it? Not John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck couldn't imagine that shit. He probably was just like, they're gross. It's just when you 
realize these things are missing from John Steinbeck's book from this movie, it, the movie becomes so hollow and also these holes are glaring. It's- the idea that no one of color is suffering, that it just doesn't exist, that these poor communities wouldn't be intermingled, that for some reason these communities would still be separate is absurd. Um, also the fact that like women and children were also having to work and yet they are not being considered part of the coalition. They are still a means for men to subsist. And the idea of like, oh, we're both out here fucking picking grapes and uh, when we get home, I still expect Barbara to cook a dinner, actually. Mm-hmm. There is no rest. And again, it's just wild, like the disconnect that you can have a movie about poverty, about the suffering of it, and not talk about the other communities that are suffering. Again, like the worst thing that can happen to anyone ever is for a white man not to have a job. Well, and yeah, and of course, of course, they they couldn't do that, right? Because the moment you point out, like, hey, you having you have more, you have more in common like the the poor white man, you have more in common with the black community than you will ever have in common with any rich white man. That mm-hmm. is a fucking fact. That will never not be true. And But if you point that out, it becomes dangerous. It becomes volatile information. It is oil on a pan that is ready to fire. Like, And so you have to keep it separate. You have to, so it doesn't explode on you. And that's and that's kind of like when we, what we mean when we say that this movie is propaganda. It is separating the suffering from the work necessary to prevent suffering. And it's and, and that, that makes it look, you know, little p propaganda, but like it matters to understand why this movie is framing these things in this way. Why yeah. is family so important as opposed to community? Because by focusing on the family, we can discredit and even imply that um, people who focus on community are malicious and that you shouldn't trust them. Um, that they don't care about you, actually. Mm-hmm. And that if you were to care about community, about more than your family, you would be a bad figurehead. You'd be a bad actor. In the movie, the only time someone is even allowed to vaguely consider, maybe I'm going to go see what these, like, union guys are all about he literally has to abandon his family to never see them again mm-hmm. even like the little goods that this movie does do it does at the expense of something that is good and the idea that like oh organization is something that is for lone wolves because the only two people we ever seen organized are either kicked out of being in their family for whatever reasons or like never had one to begin with I think our favorite character, both of us, is the priest. Yeah, the the former preacher who stops being a preacher because he loses, as he says, the Holy Spirit. He just doesn't have it in him anymore. That and finds it again in struggle. Like he he purposefully joins the union, and and he says to to the main character Tom, he says um, something along the lines of like, "I know that this is going to give me meaning again," and then he dies, and then he just gets fucking murdered, like uh, just like that. Yeah. It's not a bad movie. It's terribly boring. It has so little to say that there's almost no point in it existing. Mm-hmm. And what it does say is malicious. It has malicious intent behind it. It's not that right. Like the sentence in and of itself, hey, you know, you should care about your family. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that statement. But within the context of what this movie is selling you, you need to take a look behind the curtain. They, they have taken 
the meat and vegetables out of your soup and fed you stone. We keep talking about like unionization and why it's important. And I think this is kind of maybe a little baby basic, but I do think we should talk about that on like a literal level of like why in this moment of depression does it matter? And why is that more important? You know, Mm -hmm. just insisting it is, is not an explanation for it. Yeah. I mean, in, just his- historically in the 1940s is when is when you saw the strongest that unions in the United States would ever be. The reason why it was so dangerous is because like the power that they had as workers was volatile as long as they could continue building their coalitions. And then the Dust Bowl happens and millions of agrarian families lose their means of subsistence and they have to go to food banks in these industrialized cities. They are prime fodder for these unions to go, hey, this shouldn't have happened. There should have been a a way to prevent something like this from affecting your ability to live, to feed your kids. This wasn't going to fly. And so America started really cracking down on a racial level. Jim Crow laws became even more strict uh, in in a lot of the country. And on top of that, um, harsher laws were passed to limit unions' abilities to recruit. To organize. And oddly enough, the most dangerous thing of all, FDR started rolling out incredibly lucrative social programs. Things like Job Act or something like yeah. that. The, and uh, basically guaranteed work through the federal government. And like all of this, people were able to point to and say, well, we don't need unions anymore because we're getting all the things that unions say we don't have. And then World War II happens, obviously, and, um, you know, racial tensions become even more vivid as black people aren't allowed to join the military, or if they are, they are not there. They have to do so in a limited capacity. Same goes for Asian Americans. And I think for the most part, even um, Latino Americans are almost completely barred. Mm -hmm. They are not citizens. So it's... And like, why? Why does it matter, right? Like the the un- they got they got everything they asked for. Why does it matter that the unions went away? And it's because, well, as soon as the war was over, as soon as FDR died, all of those social programs went away. They ceased to exist, and the unions didn't come back. And they right like, and now here we are, eighty or some years later, and we have less now in terms of power, in terms of wage power. Like we we just don't have like people. Like, what is it? Like 60% of Americans can't afford rent Yeah. on a month-to-month basis. Like, that level of inequality hasn't been seen in this country since before the big unions. And that's why you're seeing big unions coming back. These contradictions are so much more apparent to us now. And what this movie is telling you is that when you see these contradictions, what you need to do is focus on your family. All that's going to do is it's going to mean that you're alone. And that you have no one there to help you um, because the fucking banks aren't going to do it. They don't give a shit about you. The fucking like people who own your homes aren't going to do it. The landlords aren't going to help you. They'll kick you out the second they have the chance. And until and until you force it, the government isn't going to give us those social programs back. What were we talking about again? (laughs) But why unions matter. And that's why unions matter. Because they get us these things. They give us the power as workers to force change on a level that is 
immediately and materially helpful, right? It's not enough for, for the fucking president of the United States to say in 10 years, we're going we're gonna to give people food stamps. Give us food now, right? And while we're talking about um, things that couldn't, we couldn't have seen coming, who, who would have known that these things would have happened? Let's talk about the uh, immediate basis of this film, which is the Dust Bowl, and how we could have, in fact, very much seen it coming and very much stopped the Dust Bowl from happening, actually. I, I'm so tired. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm like, burnt out of, like, being able to be angry. But, yeah, like, um, I mean, just you, you, you. Okay, I, I don't know why I gave this to you. I can talk about single crop farming. Yeah. <laughs> I know about this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is not, like, a subject I've spent a ton of time on. But the idea that, like, the government paid families extra for monocrop farming. If you only ever grow corn on your land, we'll give you 25 cents more than if you rotated your crops in a way that didn't deplete the soil of nutrition and make it into a literal dust bowl. And the government knew this was bad, and they knew that this sucked. However, with the beautiful, beautiful corporations and the demand for these things, they didn't give a shit because it was never going to hurt them. Mm-hmm. The idea of like, oh, well, 50 years down the road, all of this land will be ruined doesn't matter because you're not going to have to deal with it from 50 years. Cause you're not going to be the president. You're not going to be the CEO in 50 years. And that's how these things happen. And that's how monocropping happens, because like that's far enough away that nobody gives a shit until the people who are doing the monocropping because they've been told by the government to monocrop because they've been told by whoever owns their land to monocrop are out of a farm and in, who gives a shit mm-hmm. that's on you it's really insidious because like you, the way like you know your high school or elementary school history class talks about this is like oh well we just didn't know that's mm-hmm. fucking bullshit like the the entire idea of crop rotation is knowledge that Europeans have had for hundreds of years. It's knowledge that indigenous people of the United States have had for millennia. Mm-hmm. Like the ro- like crop rotation is is some real basic bitch shit. I don't like I like one of the first we things we invented farm, was farming. And then we were like, oh fuck, it turns out we need to rotate we things. We need to rotate things. Like it's but the the reason it was done is because this was this was exploited stolen land literally like the state of oklahoma like all of the midwest that was in that like like all of all i mean all of the united states but (laughs) like even like even more recently in the history that we're talking about like Mm -hmm. that land was indigenous land and it was taken from them and purposefully used for farming and the idea was just to strip it of all it was worth as fast as possible and sell it for money and like no thought was given to long-term sustainability because capitalism doesn't give a shit about long-term sustainability. It cares about short-term gain. Um, and if that means that an untold number of American families die, so be it. They weren't going to live anyway. Um, and like, and the thing that really like grabs my goat about this is that this is a completely like systemically created issue. This was a famine that was orchestrated by policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't call it a genocide of the working class. We call it an accident we couldn't have seen coming. Um, and this is like a thing that like no, like very few films will talk about this in the way that it needs to be talked about. But like 
when government policy directly leads to the death of a person, it's not murder, but it is, right? It's just that it's murder at the hands of the state, mm-hmm. at the hands of the politicians who wrote those laws. This happens all the time in the United mm-hmm. States. And we don't think about it that way. And maybe, and we need to really start thinking about it that way. And if you don't think about it that way, like I said, you should start thinking about it that way, right? Like, I don't know, how, where are we now? 1.2 million people have died of COVID in the United States in the past three years. That number is going up. And it's still going up. Every single one of those people that died, it's not, the, it's not because people didn't get vaccinated. It's not because people didn't want to wear masks. It's because the government didn't fucking care. Every single one of those 1.2 million people is directly the fault of the United States government that they died. If they ha- if people had been properly educated about vaccine care, if we had been given proper social fallbacks so that we could minimize contact spread, none of this would have happened and 1.2 million people would still be alive today. God willing. Some of them, you know, were old. But like, the, the point still stands. Like these are this is this is direct murder of people by the state. You can point to homelessness and the raids on homeless encampments and a million other things, which are escalating, which are escalating, and which are also policy based. The reason people are homeless is policy. Mm-hmm. There, like there are a thousand things that are policy, and that's what is killing people. Um, but also talking about genocide. Let's talk about how this movie treats land. Oh my gosh! So I will. I will also <laughs> give you a break. Um, this movie is obsessed with family, but is also obsessed with the idea of a land ownership. We talked about this a little bit in Gone with the Wind. Absolutely, and we're going to talk about it again, baby. So many people have these rants about like. My granddad died on this land. I was born on this land. This land belongs to me. And it's so facetious because that's like, you've been here for what then? A hundred years? If that? Like, that's Mm, ridiculous. Maybe 70 years. That's like, what, three generations? Yeah. Do you know who was here before you? Literal years decades hundreds of years of indigenous communities that made this land farmable for you that cultivated the area that made the paths you're using like their entire living memory was spent on this land and you killed them and excised them and murdered them and you have the gall to have a movie of this family traveling in tears like oh how terrible how terrible it is to to walk through these dusty deserts like some sort of drive of sadness and it's like literally the trail of tears happened within your living memory within the memory of the people making this film and to have the audacity to distill that imagery and to steal I mean, they like, got, it's so bullshit. And they get to drive, actually. They yeah, do I was going to say. They get to have a car. A drive of sadness is much less, <laughs> is much less sad, but, right? All of it is like pels in comparison to the treatment of the people who actually owned this land and who wouldn't even say they owned it because most indigenous communities are like, yeah, it's the land. Nobody owns it. That's mm-hmm. dumb. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated but, issue for sure. But nonetheless, like, like it's... To use that language 
when you might have killed the person who lived here and be like, well, this is mine now. I had coffee here this morning. Like, it's so facetious, so awful. The idea that America was like this ungroomed, empty land is so toxic and this movie loves to do it. You don't see an indigenous person in this whole movie the same way you don't see a black person in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about the people who actually made the land worth anything. Yeah, and it's right because like if we did, this would be a different the, movie. The the it would be too much, I think, for this movie to handle. The celluloid would literally like catch fire in your hands from how hypocritical it would be mm-hmm. uh, if it did try to show it. Um, and not to say that, like, the suffering these people are going through doesn't matter. But it is to say the language and imagery you use when talking about that suffering does matter. And it's to say the hypocrisy of talking about one race's suffering over another. Quote, heavy quotations around, like, race, right? Because, like, ethnicity mm-hmm. and all that jazz is egregious. Why do we get this film instead of a film about Native Americans who were on this land, right? That is mm-hmm. what people mean when they say, like, you need to be cautious of what stories were being told. Not to say that, like, these stories aren't important, but it's to say, why did we get 10 of these and not a single one about, in- like, indigenous peoples? Yeah, it's just... It's racism, in case you weren't sure. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that question. I hesitate to ask. Okay. But do you think this movie deserves an Oscar? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no. I don't think it does. No, absolutely not. Um, and like, I I feel like just to like again, like content, like the whole this the whole I feel like this entire fucking like forty six minutes that we've been talking, it's all about context. Context matters, right? Like, it's not enough to just point at something and say, "Wow, you got to give sad. us context." Um, and so to give some context, right? The reason. I, I think we could argue that Rebecca deserved a form of accolade was because it was it was trying to do something. Um, it was trying to tell a kind of story and like maybe it wasn't succeeding, but it was doing it. It was failing in interesting enough ways that it raised a lot of questions and a lot of interesting discussions. These discussions that we are having right now are not are not because of this movie. Like it, they, they are. Be- if we didn't already think about these things. We wouldn't know to ask these questions, right? This movie doesn't bring up these questions. This movie wants to smother them. This movie does its best, its absolute best to 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 just like I don't even know how to say it. White whitewash <laughs> and like completely remove context. It is just look at this white family suffer. Isn't this the worst possible thing that could happen in America? Yeah. In the United States of North America? <laughs> no. So, no, it doesn't get an Oscar. Obviously. Also, John Ford is a shit director. This movie fucking sucks. It was a bad movie. It's less good than the book, and the book is less good than the book, book. it stole it from. Oh, also, just while we're here, let's tell some fun John Steinbeck facts. Yeah, some fun St- John Steinbeck facts. So, John Steinbeck... Is a piece uh, of shit. Is a piece of shit. Is a hack writer. I'm sorry to everybody out there who loves Of Mice and Men. I did too. But we all have to throw away our heroes sometimes. Oh, so, no pedestals. Oh, no. This pedestal was made of salt. <laughs> John Steinbeck started his career as a journalist, like most, I think, writers. And actually joined the, I think it was the Writers Association. 
Creative Writers Association, something like that. It was a it was a communist organization. It was a communist organization of writers. Mm -hmm. And I think like immediately after joining, called up the CIA and was like, hey, by the way, do you want me to work for you? I'll suck your dick for free. (laughs) Like (laughs) um and and like it, it like whatever. Some of you here are like, oh, he narked on some commies, who cares? Fine. If you think about that, if you if you think that way, I disagree with you, but like it's I, some real snitch. It's some shit. real baby bitch. Even snitch if you're shit. not like pro or sympathetic to communist organizations, it's still some real backstabby behavior. Mm-hmm. So he stole this book, obviously. Um, some that's real sexist backstabby be- behavior. <laughs> During the war, the American War of Aggression in Vietnam, uh, our colonial efforts, Steinbeck. As a personal favor to, I think it was President Lyndon B. Johnson, whom he was good friends with, wrote almost entire, no, not even almost, entirely positive articles about the American war effort in Vietnam solely so that his son wouldn't see the worst of the action. He was criticized and lambasted by every single journalist and author in his circle for this, and he didn't care. He never retracted any of his work. Never apologized. He never actually went to Vietnam, as far as I know, or I, I could never corroborate that. He just he just lied. <laughs> he just lied. Um, like, when, when literally every other, like, journalist worth their salt at the time was talking about literal war crimes that we were doing... Um, to to the people of Vietnam, he was just he just lied about it, just straight up, so that his so that his son would be taken care of by President Johnson. You can't call yourself a human being at that point. Can't put enough oil on this pig. It's you're just you're just a piece of shit lying on the side of a sad road. So fuck John Steinbeck. Fuck his books. Fuck um, this movie based this off his book that he stole from book. a woman. Like, let me just say while we're here, this woman painstakingly gathered this information. Like, went out of her way, went to these communities, talked to these families, deeply cared about them, got kicked out of this country for being a communist. Like, did every single thing John Steinbeck didn't. <laughs> Wasn't allowed to marry her husband. Oh, yeah. Who was... Uh, who Asian I American. Was, uh, I think he was Chinese American. He was a Chinese American mm-hmm. immigrant. Wasn't allowed to marry him um, because of U.S. anti-miscegenation laws. And even after those laws were removed, couldn't find a priest to, or a, a, a judge to marry them for two years. Like, Literally every piece of shit thing John Steinbeck did, this woman did better. And like put in effort and cared about, and it sucks that he gets all the credit. And you you read this motherfucker's Wikipedia article, and it's mentioned like it was a happy accident. Like oh, and then he so he just so he, he kind of sort of plagiarized this book, but it's okay. He's still one of the greatest American writers of our era. Fuck you. It is wild that Grapes of Wrath is being taught in schools. And nobody's like, by the way, he stole this from a friggin' woman. And that's insane that we live in a time and era now where we just don't give a shit. Sonora Babs, this isn't about canceling John Steinbeck. Like, whatever. There's always going to be some fucking, like, 
lit major English student who's willing to write another essay about how he was actually just this amazing genius who gives a shit. Sorry, your opinion doesn't matter. But like what matters is elevating the voices of people like Sonora Bab, who did the work, who wrote the stories, who wrote something that is not only applicable to what we're going through today, but also spoke to the reality of what those people were going through in a way that Steinbeck couldn't even hope to imagine because he wasn't fucking there. Because he didn't care. So no, I don't want to cancel John Steinbeck so much as I want to collectively erase him from American (laughs) culture, which is a little harder. But I think if we start today, we could get this done in about five or 10 years. Really? I was thinking like five or 10 weeks. (laughs) Weeks? I just don't think that many (laughs) people have that much of like a stake in our boy John Steinbeck. I think of Mice and Men as the thing. It's going to be the thing. That's the hill that we have to really like. That's the citadel we have to storm. Yeah. Is of Mice and Men. We'll just say Sonora wrote that one. Sonora Bab wrote it. <laughs> if he gets one of her, she gets one she of his. She gets one of his. Yeah, it's yeah. only fair. Do you want to um, know how old these actors are? Oh, I was going to say the fun fact uh, that Sonora, on an interview that asked, like, how do you feel about John Steinbeck? And she was like, oh, I'm a better writer than he'll ever be. <laughs> and fuck yeah. <laughs> Get his it's, ass. Yeah, I bet. Oh, man. How old are these people? All right. There not a lot of uh, this is kind of a, a big cast of characters, but there isn't there's like no real like love interest. There kind of is. Rose kind of is a love interest sort of, but she's, she's a not love enough. interest in the way that a woman who gets hurt by a men constantly is a love interest. She's a love interest in like the same way like a crate that you're lugging around is a love interest, but then at some point the crate did lose its uh its valuable packaging. And so now you just have this empty crate. <laughs> the valuable packaging is both a man and a baby. And a baby, yeah. <laughs> she lost her man. And her baby. And a baby. Uh, anyways, there's not really a love interest in this movie, so and women don't uh, really play a role. So we're we're gonna we're gonna just focus on I think our two fa- favorite. Well, our favorite character and the main character, who's fine. fine. He's fine. Starting with the main character, Tom Joad, who's played by Henry Fonda. Thirty-three. Henry Fonda was born in 1905, which would have made him 35 Uh at the time that this film came out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then finally, we have Jim Casey, who was played by Twilight Zone fan favorite, John Carradine. I think he's like 41. So John Carradine at the time was actually born in 1906. Uh, One year younger at 34. Not clearly not what I thought. He's he's got a he's got a. Face. He's, he's got a, an he's, old face. Yeah, that's part of the reason why he was so popular in the Twilight Zone is actually because of how like he's got a very sharp, weird face, and yeah, you, you could really light that shit with shadows and get get some good shots. What was your favorite scene? Oh, I'm sorry. I think you're. I think the Holy Spirit <laughs> escaped your body. Oh no, the Holy Spirit is gone. Uh, they were in the Department of Agriculture run kind of camp. Mm-hmm. And they got the word that some guys were going to come in to start some shit. Light it on fire. So, yeah, basically to give the cops like a, a good enough excuse to like raid the camp. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And beat the shit out of people. The scene of them like stealthily like just separating all of them from each other uh, is really good. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's possibly like that's like the, the only the only scene in the movie. The only where real I was, community like, scene. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, this is really cool. Tracked kind of immediately by the next scene where he gets snarked on by yeah. by that same community, which I don't think would ever happen in real life. Same, but um, that's that scene was good. It was very Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, it's my favorite scene. Do you even remember this movie? Like genuinely, it's been a it's week. It's fading real fast. I'm gonna be real with you. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go through oh your boy. notes or something? The movie is 
like sand in yeah. a beach. That noise I made was the rest of what I remembered about that movie <laughs> leaving my body. <laughs> it's hard to like any part of this movie because all of it's a little sick and twisted. Um, like the Joker. I like what the reveal when you find out that actually the our favorite character, the retired pastor, is in fact not dead because he previously was arrested by the police and we find him out there part of the union picketing at the line and he tells uh the main character guy like hey why do you think they're paying you as much as they are it's because we're picketing and the minute we leave they're gonna pay you less um and the cops come and disband the picket line and literally that morning they're like so we're paying you half as much i thought that was very good yeah unionize your local workplace And uh, don't watch this fucking movie. It sucks. If you're Mm -hmm. in the mood to watch a movie about, like, you know, struggle and um, collective action, watch Salt of the Earth. This technically came out in 1954, but that's a good one. Um, Watch. um, You don't need to dedicate yourself to the years that we do. That would be very restrictive. That's our gimmick. And if you do it, we will sue you. (laughs) TM, 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 TM. We're going to, we wrote it down and we sent it to ourselves in the mail. We've been posting it in the news every week. Every week. Um, who are you? I've been your host, Andres Reyes. You can find me on Twitter at royalty underscore Valens. And you can also find me on co-host at Digital Sous Chef. I think there's a dash in there somewhere. I've been your host, Mavis Evergreen. You can find me on Twitter at Mavis Evergreen. Or you can find me also on a co-host where I probably will actually post things more at little underscore noble. You have another podcast? Like some kind of slut? <laughs> I'm a cheating whore. Uh, what are we watching next? Oh. I'm oh, it's some more movie left just, you. Uh, I, it's, just, it's like a bad gas. <laughs> it just keeps leaving me. Um, oh no, they're not the grapes of wrath. They're the grapes of heartburn. Heartburn and indigestion. We are not, unfortunately, we are not free of John Ford. No. He will, he, like heartburn and indigestion, is going to haunt our bowels with um, How Green Was My Valley. It does seem like a weird sex metaphor. I'm not saying that we should, you know. I'm saying we should hashtag cancel John Steinbeck. Yeah. Get him off Twitter. Get him off Twitter because he's dead. This is a joke. <laughs> 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 <laughs>